This is an ATS podcast for the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly, and I'm Dr. Vinicius Cavalieri from uh, Curtin University in Perth, Australia. And I have here with me Dr. Catherine Granger, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne, a Victorian Cancer Agency Clinical Research Fellow and a Physiotherapy Research Lead at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Catherine's research has mainly focused on exercise training and promotion of physical activity in people with lung cancer, which is the topic of this podcast. Thank you so much, Catherine. Uh, just to set the scene, so lung cancers are grouped into two main types, non-small cell and small cell, and, and the types are broadly divided. Uh, in initial and advanced or extended stage. So in the context of clinical trials of exercise training, which populations of lung cancer have been offered exercise training and which populations may be offered this intervention as part of clinical practice at present? Thank you, Vin. And I'd like to begin by thanking the ATS Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly for the opportunity to record this podcast today. Uh, so, so to begin with, with the start of your question, as you described, that there are a number of different types of, of lung cancer. Uh, and the most common type of lung cancer that, that people have is non-small cell lung cancer, which occurs in around 80 to 85% of people. And then the other less common type of lung cancer is small cell lung cancer. And by far the most of the research that we have done in, in the area of exercise around the world in lung cancer has been focused on the group with non-small cell lung cancer to begin with. And then we have people who have different stages of disease. So uh, there are groups of, of patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer early in the disease process. Uh, these are people who have early stage one or stage two disease. Uh, and often those people have, uh, have minimal symptoms at time of diagnosis. Often the lung cancer can be detected incidentally on a chest x-ray or a test uh, in a workup for another type of uh, condition. And those patients then are able to go through a treatment with curative intent. So that treatment may be surgery followed by chemotherapy or radiation therapy. The other type of lung cancer in the other subgroup, as you described, are people who have advanced or extended stage disease cancer. Uh, and these people normally present at time of diagnosis with much more severe symptoms. Often these people will have quite severe breathlessness or fatigue or weight loss uh, at this time point. And then usually the treatment for, the, for this group of patients is often around uh, palliative disease uh, and treatment without curative intent. So they're quite, there's quite a, a very broad spectrum of people uh, in this in this group classed as lung cancer. In terms of exercise training for people with lung cancer, around the world there's a very strong growing body of evidence supporting the role of exercise and, and we will talk about that today. But there's fairly little work happening in routine clinical practice. It's quite different to the COPD or respiratory community where pulmonary rehabilitation is very well established into clinical practice now. In contrast, people with lung cancer, there's often very few services or, or exercise programs that they can access because this evidence hasn't quite translated into clinical practice. So usually and certainly in Australia and, uh, and a number of countries around the world, often the only access that people can get into exercise programs at the moment with lung cancer is, is through clinical trials or research studies or the occasional pulmonary rehab program which may also accept people with lung cancer, although that's still currently not very common practice at the moment. Well, thanks, Catherine. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in this area. So based on the latest evidence, what is, what is the current, you know, broad recommended approach to exercise training for people with lung cancer? 
Thank you, Vin. The, our current gold standard guidelines for people diagnosed with cancer in general, uh, and this is not just people with lung cancer, uh, were initially set by the American College of Sports Medicine back in 2010, and since this time, there's been a number of iterations of these guidelines. But the message is fairly similar. These recommendations are for people with cancer to remain physically active uh, and to recommence physical activity as soon as possible and to avoid sedentary time. Around the actual prescription of physical activity, uh, it is generally recommended that people with cancer aim for 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week. So an example of that is things such as brisk walking or cycling. Uh, and usually that's split over the week, so often we describe that as 30 minutes on five days of the week. In conjunction with that, the recommendations are that people with cancer participate in two to three sessions of resistance or muscle strengthening sessions per week. And these, these guidelines for people with cancer are in fact exactly the same guidelines as for the healthy population and the elderly population. So our message to the general community is that people with cancer should be keeping active, avoiding being sedentary and aiming for those same guidelines. The challenge we have in lung cancer is that it's a very unique population, however. And as I mentioned earlier, our, our body of evidence is growing quite quickly and has developed quite quickly since the, the first RCT was only published in less than a decade ago. So we, we don't really um, have very specific recommendations in terms of exercise yet. We, most of the trials that have occurred and, and also the observational and cohort studies have implemented exercise programs that are based around the pulmonary rehabilitation model. So it's a model that involves both the moderate intensity aerobic exercise and resistance training as well and at the moment we really don't have evidence to suggest exactly what the best type of prescription or dose or frequency of exercise is so we've taken quite a broad general approach to to generate the evidence around the role of exercise but our next step certainly and, and there are trials in progress including a very large trial led by Lee Jones in, in the US looking at uh, aerobic training compared to resistance training compared to the combination and to, to be able to guide those recommendations in more detail. That's great. I'm looking forward to the results of that trial. But let's start off um, with people who are deemed uh, operable, okay? That is, um, those with initial stage of lung cancer who may undergo lung resection. So what are, what are the aims of preoperative exercise training in this population? The aims of preoperative training in, in people presenting for surgery for lung cancer are to improve functional exercise capacity. That's the main aspect or, or peak oxygen consumption, the main target of, of these exercise programs. And that is because there's a very strong relationship between VO2 peak and people going into surgery and their risks of post-op complications and mortality. So we, we certainly use VO2 peak as a risk stratification for patients for surgery. So for many, uh, for many patients they will undergo cardiopulmonary exercise testing or CPET when being worked up for surgery and depending on their VO2 peak if it's not above a certain level and often it's depending on the surgery sometimes it can be around 15 to 18 millilitres per kilogram per minute if they don't reach a certain threshold they actually won't be considered for surgery. So our intent in this time point for people in the preoperative period is to use exercise training to improve VO2 peak so that we can try and reduce their risk of post-op morbidity and mortality. And um, which approaches to exercise prescription may be applied preoperatively and what is considered most suitable and most effective preoperatively? 
The challenge with exercise in the preoperative period for people with lung cancer is we have a very short period of time to intervene. So the feasibility is something that, that really um, uh, controls a little bit of what we can apply in the preoperative setting. In many places, people may only have days to weeks, a month at the very most in the time between diagnosis or workup and actually going through surgery. So we really don't have time for a, a full traditional pulmonary rehab program or a, an eight-week program or 12-week program. So we have a very short period of time. In, in most of the studies, this has been around two to four weeks uh, in, which, in, in which we can offer exercise training for people awaiting lung cancer surgery. In the, um, Dr Cavalieri and myself recently published a Cochrane review looking at the role of exercise training in the preoperative setting for non-small cell lung cancer. And what we found in that Cochrane review was that the, the exercise interventions that have been tested in the literature, they all have involved aerobic exercise and that would be because we're, we're specifically targeting VO2 peak. Um, but some of the trials, a small number, have included resistance exercise training as well, but we really don't have evidence to suggest exactly that the best type of prescription. Um, what we have found from that Cochrane review is that people who have been through preoperative exercise training, based on the data we have so far, and these are a small number of studies and the quality of the evidence is still quite poor, but very promising findings in terms of reducing the risk of people developing a post-operative pulmonary complication uh, and, and short, uh, a shorter hospital length of stay. So uh, even though it looks like we only have a couple of weeks to, to a month for people to receive a pre-op program, potentially the data so far suggests that this may still be beneficial. Um, so still on early stage lung cancer. There have been studies on preoperative exercise training but also studies on post-operative exercise training. What do you think are the main differences in exercise prescription approach between pre and post-op? Some of the main differences particularly are to do with the timing that we have. Uh, the, the area of exercise training in the post-operative setting is probably the first area that really was established in lung cancer and the earliest randomised control trials were done in this area. And, and, and Dr Cavalier, your Cochrane review back from a few years ago in, in this topic was, was one of the first in this, in this area. So we've had more time to generate the evidence in people uh, following surgery for lung cancer. And, and what we've known from those studies is that there is... There there is more time available. People can, can be involved in a six or eight week or 12 week exercise program and we're not confined to that short period of time where people have, you know, the, the, the time frame is determined by the date of surgery. So that's one main difference is the duration of the exercise programs. Uh, another difference is that almost all of the programs in the post-operative setting do include a combination of resistance training as well. And whilst I've said we don't really understand uh, what type of prescription is, the, is best, it certainly appears that an, an individualised approach to the individual patient, but a combination of aerobic and resistance training is going to be most beneficial. And certainly we, we, we understand that people with lung cancer, similar to other cancer conditions, can commonly have cancer cachexia and significant muscle dysfunction similar to, to other cancer groups and also similar to people with COPD. So it's likely that re the resistance training component of the post-op programs are really going to be essential uh, to help with, with that poor, uh, poor muscle function. Uh, thanks, Catherine. And um, what, what are uh, the specific concerns or considerations which are very apparent for this type of patient population? 
The first um, specific concern or, or consideration is in the preoperative setting and the concern around uh, delaying surgery to, for a patient to undergo uh, an exercise program. And based on the data we have so far, it, there is no uh, advice to delay surgery for someone who is already fit to go through surgery for lung cancer. So it's quite important that, that we are not recommending that people uh, wait for surgery if they're already considered fit. There's a second group of patients, of course, who are, as I mentioned earlier, who are deemed not fit for surgery or not eligible for surgery. And we really don't have a lot of information yet about around the potential benefits of exercise to help improve their ability to go through surgery. But as I mentioned, people already fit for surgery. There's, there's currently no advice or no, we're not recommending exercise uh, occur in, for surgery to be delayed. Another specific um, consideration or concern is symptom levels and this is probably more apparent in the post-operative setting for people and certainly for people in the post-operative period who may be going through chemotherapy or radiation therapy whilst exercising and it, it is uh, very common that symptom levels fluctuate even on a daily basis and we do recommend that, that people continue exercising during treatment and, and the evidence suggests this is safe but it really needs to be, the prescription needs to be individualised to that patient and on cases of extreme symptoms and extreme fatigue that that, that day exercise may need to be tailored back uh, to, to a very minimal or it may actually need to be a rest day. So this group of patients needs a really quite individualised prescription and, and likely uh, fluctuations on a daily basis to, to match their symptom profile at, at the time of exercising. They're probably the main, the main two specific considerations at this time. I suppose the other area when exercising immediately post-surgery to consider is, uh, is patients depending on their wound healing and we wouldn't recommend resistance yep. training in the very early periods post-op. Uh, mm. Depending on whether they've had an open thoracotomy or a, or a video assisted uh, approach to their surgery, uh, it's, it's really important to consult with the surgeons and to check their wound healing and see when they're happy for them to commence resistance, upper limb resistance training training again. Usually this is around about the six week post-op point. Yep. Uh, it's good that you touched on, on weeks and um, I was just thinking of ideal time frames and when, when should patients pre and post-operatively be referred for exercise training? I would advocate that people are referred as early as possible. Um, it may be that we don't start exercise at that time point, but the sooner we know about patients, the better. And certainly in the pre-op phase, uh, every day is very important because the time frames are so short. So I would advocate that people be referred as soon as possible, as soon as they know they're having surgery. In fact, for some of my colleagues, they recommend they're actually staying to refer patients even when we don't know the diagnosis. People come in with respiratory symptoms and with comorbidities disease and they're recommending that they're referred to an exercise program even if we're not sure exactly if they have lung cancer. But of course these, these people would still benefit from exercise. So the sooner is better in the preoperative period. In the post-operative period as well, I would advocate that people are referred in, in a matter of weeks after surgery, even, even sort of on discharge from hospital or if you can link in with physiotherapists or exercise physiologists or other uh, exercise clinicians in the hospital phase to refer them on to programs if possible in the, in the post-operative period. And, and we, we know in, in our setting, we're starting, we're starting to try um, to help people exercise as early as starting the day after surgery in a very low-intensity model 
moderate, a low intensity walking program, gradually building that up over a number of days to weeks. So there's something we can do. What we want to avoid is people sitting and being sedentary and experiencing functional decline, which happens so quickly. So, so really the sooner the better in terms of, um, in terms of referral. What will be important though is targeting the exercise accordingly depending on where they are in their recovery trajectory. Oh yeah, absolutely. And now let's let's move from early to advanced stage lung cancer. What do you think are the uh, main considerations for exercise and is exercise actually effective at improving outcomes in this uh, very specific population? Yeah, this is a very different population as you highlighted. Um, people with, in particular, if I, I talk about stage 4 disease or stage 4 non-small cell lung cancer, the survival and the prognosis is very poor for this, this group of patients um, with, with uh, approximately 1% one, you know, 1 of people alive 5 years following diagnosis. So this is a, a, very, a, a, a group of people who have a very poor prognosis. However, exercise is, is really important um, and we, it, the evidence for exercise in this setting has been slower to develop but there are a number of randomised control trials in progress around the world looking specifically at this question and we, we really wait with anticipation as their results are published over probably the next 12 months or so. There's been a number of these trials running for the last few years. What we know from the earlier small trials and from observational studies is that exercise appears to be safe in this setting. There's, there's no sort of evidence to suggest it's not safe or people shouldn't be offered exercise in a controlled environment with, with considerations of any, any particular precautions. And it also appears that it, that it is effective at maintaining or improving physical function, uh, potentially at maintaining or improving health-related quality of life. But the data we have is not as strong as in the other settings and we really, we, we really look forward to seeing the big trials that are coming out of uh, particularly the, the big trial by Morton Quist in Copenhagen, a, a group in Germany are, are doing a big trial. Our, our group led by Professor Dennehy in Melbourne are, are leading a trial at the moment. So there's, there's a number of trials that will be published very soon which will give us more information. But it, it appears based on the early work that, that it is effective and important for this group as well. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to having the results of uh, the two trials that you've mentioned. And uh, just moving to assessment now, what are appropriate outcome measures to assess the effectiveness of exercise training for this population? Do you think they differ from standard pulmonary rehabilitation uh, recommendations? And some other questions are, you know, are there additional ones which are pertinent to this population and what are their characteristics or why are they useful in assessing effectiveness of exercise training? Uh, what is the current knowledge around MCIDs for those measures um, in people with lung cancer and how, how is this used clinically? Many of the outcome measures are, are applicable from the general pulmonary rehabilitation programs for people with lung cancer as well and certainly if, if people with lung cancer are being integrated in those pulmonary rehab programs, I would advocate that they are going through many of the same measures. Uh, for example, field-based walking tests to measure functional exercise capacity, we commonly use the six-minute walk test, uh, which, is, which is very commonly used in lung cancer, in fact probably the most commonly used field-based walking test. We have uh, recently confirmed that the minimal clinically important difference for a change in that test for people with lung cancer is around 22 to 42 metres, so fairly similar to the MCID in, in the COPD population. Other field-based walking tests that are used in people with, with lung cancer are things such as the incremental shuttle walk test or the endurance shuttle walk test, so they're very similar field-based walk, walking tests to the, the COPD population. 
then of course it's important to be assessing muscle muscle strength and muscle function and uh, and this can be done in a very similar way to, to the COPD population. It's a really important outcome to remember with people with lung cancer because of uh, issues with muscle dysfunction as I highlighted in cancer cachexia and muscle wasting. So we would advocate some very easy tools to use a thing such as handheld dynamometry uh, which is an easy way to get a to get an idea of, of muscle strength. Uh, people may be considering um, depending on the patient population either 5 or 10 RM uh, for people with lung cancer. And then the other group of, of measures which are really important to remember are measures around symptoms and health-related quality of life. And this is where I'd probably advocate to use slightly different tools to the COPD population, the general pulmonary rehab population, because we do have some very good cancer-specific health-related quality of life questionnaires that measure specific issues for people with cancer and particularly can pick up on a number of cancer-related symptoms. The two most commonly used questionnaires for people with lung cancer for this um, are the EORTC, the European Organisation for the Research and Treatment of Cancer, their lung cancer questionnaire, and also the FACT-L uh, questionnaire, which is an alternative uh, questionnaire measuring health-related quality of life in people with lung cancer. So they're really good questionnaires to, to capture patients' quality of life and, and their, their symptoms as well. Okay, um, so this is just the, the last question for the podcast and from, from our discussion today it sounds like we do have a strong case for exercise for people diagnosed with lung cancer. Yet um, you mentioned at the start of the podcast that most people with lung cancer are not doing enough exercise. So what, what are the barriers for people with lung cancer in terms of exercising? There are, there are a number of barriers uh, for people exercising and these are barriers in our, the way our healthcare system is set up for them to access programs but also barriers for people themselves with lung cancer. We've recently, our group in Melbourne have recently done, done some work, qualitative work with people with lung cancer who have been through the healthcare system over the last couple of years uh, and we ran focus groups talk, talking to people with lung cancer about what were their challenges and, and why was it hard to exercise uh, and some of the, the main reasons come down to symptoms and the impact of symptoms and the fear that exercise might actually make those symptoms worse. Another barrier is that uh, often people with lung cancer were telling us that they wanted to remain active but their carers and their families wanted them to rest with this belief that rest is, is beneficial and uh, rest will really protect them. So, so misguided support from carers is another barrier and, and knowledge around the rationale for exercise and many people uh, are really um, don't often get provided with information to explain why it is important to keep exercising and actually the reason that they need to invest time into this. So they were some of the barriers from, from the patient's point of view. From the healthcare system point of view there are a number of barriers to accessing programs and, and as we've talked about today the, the evidence is rapidly growing. Uh, we really now have good evidence that, that we should be offering people with lung cancer, exercise support, advice, prescription, uh, access to outpatient programs if possible. But the healthcare system at the moment is not quite set up for that. So we need to look at ways to particularly look at cost effectiveness of these models so that we can, we can have a, um, a financial outcomes for healthcare systems if they're going to invest money into these sort of programs that they know it is going to be a cost effective model and it's potentially likely to be able to hopefully uh, keep people out of hospital uh, or get them out of hospital quicker. The other thing that we, we need to look at is upskilling our general interdisciplinary community because many people see 
see patients with lung cancer, uh, the medical team, surgeons, physicians, uh, nurse specialists, allied health, physiotherapists, etc. And certainly the, the qualitative work we've done uh, recently with treating clinicians, people have identified that they often don't feel confident or skilled to be able to advise exercise to their patients. So I think we have a, a lot of work to do to, um, to grow the, the knowledge base of our treating clinicians around the importance of exercise and how they can be actually advising their patients so that people can, can get that information uh, or referral if possible to programs that are out there. So we have a lot of work to do in this space. Yep, I agree with you and uh, I think this is a nice point to finish off our discussion here and I'd like to thank you Catherine, um, Dr. Catherine Granger for all the work you've done in this area, all the amazing work and, and for sharing your knowledge and experience with uh, the members of ATS Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly. Thank you very much Vin and thank you for the opportunity to record this podcast and I really look forward to working with the ATS as we continue to push this area to improve our patient outcomes.